Project management and PMO doesn't have to be boring. The Project Chatter podcast brings you no BS real speak on project topics, business changes, and the latest in techniques from industry leaders around the world. Take a back seat as the boys at PC Podcast take you on a journey of interesting banner, stories, and analogies to help demystify the science of projects and controls. Welcome to the Project Chatter Podcast, proudly sponsored by the world's largest aggregate of project management content in the world. Think of it as an interesting project info on demand. Take a conversational tour through the complexities of living with and on projects. Project Chatter Podcast is your real speak podcast, tackling the questions on schedule, scope, cost, risk, change, governance, reporting, big data, and much, much more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Project Chatter Podcast. Uh, today is really exciting. We got two guests on the show. Uh, we have Chulu, who's a commercial manager um, with a background in Crossrail, um, and we have Rob, who is in project controls and has a background um, working on the Heathrow Airport in London. So very excited to uh, to listen to what they have to say today. And as always, I'm joined by Val Matthews, my co-host, and I am Dale Fung. Hello. Hi. Hello. Good day. <laughs> so the interesting thing here, and thanks, Dale, for the intro, is that we've got a, a three-way shared mic uh, just going through sound reviews, and we think this is the best moment, but then we've made a promise that we're not going to look in each other's eyes while we talk about various components of these projects. But um, I thought we could kick off with Chula. So thanks, for guys, for joining us. I think it's great that we can have a, a discussion about some mega projects and obviously – you guys have been around, so you, you understand how project management works, but also truly your experience, not just in uh, Crossfire, which is a, a complex project in itself, but also in the commercial management space, which from a, from a podcast perspective, we haven't really covered much of, but obviously it's a really important part of how we, we manage and deliver projects in terms of project performance and being on time. And I'd really love to hear both of your stories. And I think we might start with you, Chulu, um, yeah. in terms of you know your background and and how you uh, you got into the Crossrail and your story and, and some of the challenges you faced on, on Crossrail. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, <clears throat> so my journey comes um, quite a bit uh, way off from construction. So I started off first in, in banking. Um, I worked in banking for a very long time. Then after that, um, I was in uh, retail banking. And retail banking, you don't get paid a lot. So obviously I was chasing money at the time. And somebody told me that um, there are a lot of professions in um, in construction. Uh, you can either become a project manager, commercial manager, construction manager, or different fields within within construction. So I've, I I felt like that was very appealing. So I, I was went the appeal, into it. What was the appeal to commercial in particular? Like, is it, it wasn't actually, to be honest, oh, because okay. the first thing I thought to myself was, I don't want to work in in in, in construction, muddy boots. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, one of my mates was like, "No, and really, yeah, and exactly." Outside, yeah, and the cold. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. England is very cold. Yeah. So uh, I didn't want to go into it until um, they actually forced me to. Pretty much held my hand and forced me into um, commercial management, and uh, uh, I jumped in. Uh, I was looking for the money, and at that time, it actually paid me a lot more than what banking was paying me 
because retail banking doesn't pay that much. Yeah. So what's yeah. what is the Crossrail? So for those that don't know what Crossrail project is, I mean, if you didn't know, well, what's the quickest way um, to explain it? The quickest way to explain Crossrail is that uh, London has got two existing lines. So you've got uh, the Great Eastern line that starts from Liverpool Street all the way to Shenfield. And you've got the Great Western that starts from Paddington going all the way to uh, Reading. Um, so what Crossrail is doing is just joining the two existing lines uh, through an underground section uh, with uh, new, about, I think, if, I, if my memory serves me right, it's about nine or eight new stations that are going through through London. But at the same time, you have another little branch that actually goes off to, to Heathrow. So as you're going towards um, Reading, you have to branch off and go to Heathrow. Um, now, the complexity it's of... It's not done yet. They were trying to do that. No, it's, it's, it's done. It's from done. Reading? Yeah. So the, the trains are running now for, from, from Paddington to Reading. What's not done on Crossrail is the central section. So if you look at, if you look at Crossrail... Um, the service has already started from Liverpool Street to um, Shenfield, and uh, there's another service that's running from Paddington to yeah. to, um, to to Reading. What's not running at the moment is the central section that's connecting the two lines. What's the value of that project, roughly? Uh, it, it was 18 billion, but slowly creeping up. Um, 18 million pounds, is that right? 18 billion pounds, yeah. yeah right. Uh, but it's slowly creeping up because of um, some of the delays that have been, well, unforeseen conditions um, that have gone on. So, yeah. Yeah. So obviously it's been in the news and the media a few times. There's obviously got a lot of press, not not positive press. But when did you join and when did it go wrong? Was it because of you? Oh, cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> Before, before, before no, I'm not going to blame an £18 billion pound program on you, mate. I'm just... Oi, oi, shut up, shut up you. Let's listen, let's, let's listen, let's listen to Dale. Dale, Dale, Dale you were about to ask a question. No, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that spicy story soon. But I think before we get into the details and challenges of what Crossrail um, has in front of them in terms of, you know, all, all the various complexities, maybe give um, those listening a bit of a view of what um, a commercial role entails on a project. Um, mm-hmm. Because there'll probably be quite a few people listening and going, well, what is commercial? What do they do? Why do they, what, what, what role do they play on a project? Um, could you share point, sort of your day to day, what you do, what you deal with, which, you know, um, are you in terms of commercial? Were you facing uh, contractors or were you facing a customer or both? Yeah. What, what kind of what kind of a, uh, what does that look like? What's that environment look like from a commercial perspective? Oh, that's a very good question, Dale. Yeah, very, very good question. So back in the days, the way uh, projects used to work is that um, you had the contract that was drafted by the lawyers and the lawyers had to actually run that contract. Um, And on site, you had quantity surveyors and the quantity surveyors did all the costs and all that stuff. Now, the problem you, 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 you had is that uh, there was a separation of power between uh, the legal department and um, the quantity surveyors. Um, and what happened was that um, they decided to merge. They decided to merge the two two professions into one. Uh, hence the reason why the quantity surveyor role now changed from a quantity surveyor into a commercial manager, because the management of the contract now was moved from the legal department to the the QSs. Hence the reason why the role of the QS changed from uh, QSing to actually just uh, becoming a commercial manager. 
So the role of a, a commercial manager is pretty much managing the contract uh, all the way from the conditions of contract uh, through to the payment mechanisms that are in the contract, uh, uh, looking at um, um, mixing with uh, the, the uh, program controls to actually know how the program is running uh, so that you cost load the program um, and you know how much you're going to be uh, making payments uh, on a monthly basis. So the two roles between project controls and commercial manager actually merge at some point uh, because a commercial manager has to always work with the uh, project controls. So um, the commercial manager in, in a nutshell is pretty much management, managing the contract uh, and the conditions of contract. So you have to take the deliverables from the contract and actually manage those deliverables. Now, I mean, just, sorry, just on that note, there's different okay. terminology as well for commercial managers. I've heard contract manager or procurement manager, transaction manager. Yeah. It, are they all the same thing, or are there differences between them from your from your experience? They, they from my experience, they're different. Uh, procurement manager are pretty much uh, people who are in procurement, so they're looking at um, setting up um, how you go out to tender and how you actually bring in subcontractors. Uh, a commercial manager pretty much has the contract where it's, it's already let out, and he has to manage the conditions of the contract. Yeah, that was pretty much, I was going to ask a similar thing, you know, is all commercial management roles the same? But um, I, th I think that's quite a good um, overview of, of what happens in commercial um, for those that are listening and, and, you know, how closely actually you have to work with the controls teams and the, the PMO in general. And in some instances, I guess, uh, you, you hear of commercial actually being part of the PMO team. Um as well as fully embedded um, but that's not always the case so so there's a close tie into into uh, the the control team so thanks for that um so yeah val asked you a very very uh, juicy question there on crossrail because crossrail certainly in london and the uk has got a lot of airtime in terms of its delays and then some of its challenges it's had. Um, so I don't know if you want to go into some of those challenges, if you're allowed to go into some of those challenges, um, if, if, you know, if, if there's any lessons to be shared with um, others out there um, that are of interest uh, and in the public domain, then um, yeah, that I think it'll be good for, for the listeners. Okay, yeah, so, so going back to um, the question that was asked in terms of what actually went wrong with, with Crossrail, um, what is the commercial manager? Now I think I think we went past that one. We come back. Yeah, to we, it. Went, we, went, we went past that one. What are the challenges while you're at Crossrail, and can you share them? And are you allowed to share them? And yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I, I think I can share the, the, some of the challenges. Yeah, I think uh, when the program was designed, it was designed in uh, a little bit of a silo. So you had people who were designing and constructing the the, the stations. Uh, you had people who were designing and construct uh, and uh, installing the signaling system, and on one side you had um, manufacturers who were actually going to manufacture the the trains. Um, at some point, there was a disjoint in the in 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 their programs uh, of delivery, so we ended up in a situation whereby certain stations were delivered, uh, certain parts of Crossrail were delivered on time. But there wasn't that connection, the interdependency between different contracts to actually show where the critical path was 
um, and this is just my personal opinion, I must say. So we ended up in a situation where some parts of Crossrail were actually delivered on time. And uh, when it came to the critical parts to actually join the system together, the whole system was not yet ready. Uh, things like the power installation uh, in order for uh, the trains to, to run and in order for the, uh, the whole railway line to actually be uh, energized wasn't ready. Uh, but the tra- but some of the stations were already ready. Then you look at the windows of uh, testing as well for, for the trains to actually go into the tunnel. Um, you have to have a very rigid system of actually having um, a good plan and a good program in terms of when the testing happens. But at the time, the trains were ready to go into the tunnels. The tunnels were not yet ready to actually receive the trains. That's interesting, isn't it? Because as a commercial manager, you must be frustrated by some of the project planning, scheduling, controls, practices. And one of the things I think is coming out of what you're saying is around interdependency management. Yeah. And yeah. how much visibility as a commercial manager did you have of Crossrail's interdependency management? Uh, to be honest, I didn't have a lot uh, because my my role uh, focused mainly on... No controls, sorry, but that sounds like no controls. Um, yes, to a degree. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, to a degree, yeah. Um, you get to to a part where project controls wasn't there and everybody was actually targeting a certain date and everybody was just rushing to actually um, finish their part of the works mm. and not actually understanding that their part of the works was actually encroaching in, in other, other works in order for you to actually see the critical path within the whole program, not just your project. So no master schedule, no master schedule, or or interdependency between um, between the parts, and you find this on a lot of the projects. Yeah. I mean, I mean, let's let's be honest. Crossrail isn't an you know an isolated project when it comes to lessons learned around integration and interdependency management. Yeah. But being on the ground floor, being in in the project, it's a lot harder to see what's going on yeah. outside and what what's required. So when you see a milestone that you're aiming to deliver. Everyone ramps to deliver that milestone, but but unless you're aware of what milestones are interconnected and what yeah. needs to be delivered first, you're kind of flying blind, aren't you? Yeah, correct, correct. And one one thing I might I might add as well is that if if you look at Crossrail, Crossrail is a very politically driven uh, project. So most of the dates that were actually lined for Crossrail were lined from Parliament all the way from Parliament through uh, the Act of Parliament all the way through to the projects. I am not too sure whether those dates were realistic or whether those dates were actually set to actually meet certain political goals. Mm. So to me, the way I see it is the the whole thing was actually put together in a way where it wasn't realistic to actually deliver it in the time they wanted to deliver it. But nobody was able to actually stand up and say, look, forget politics let's deliver this as a project and let's deliver this as a program. Is that the only project you've experienced um, the lack of, what's the word, like disobedient leadership where you know the intelligent decision is to actually act rather than comply? Uh, yeah, I'd say I'd say that. Um, because when I worked on, because uh, on, I worked on the, um, the Olympic Park as well, Mm. Um, so 2012 the, Olympics. Two, yeah, 2012 in Olympics in London. Yeah. Wow. 
So when I worked on that one, um, the whole program management of, of the Olympic Park was slightly different to the way Crossroad has been done. And I think there's, there's, there was a, a clear goal to the fact that the date was not going to move, whatever the case. Right. Yeah. Um, and the way, the way the government did it in terms of bidding for, for the Olympics was quite clever. The bid at a very high level then reduced the, the cost of um, um, the um, construction of the Olympic Park through um, value engineering. Then at some point when we realized that we were actually going to creep into um, being over budget, they reverted back to the original um, value of how much the contract price or the, pro the program price was going to be. So it was easy for them to actually have a buffer in there, mm. which they could actually use at some point uh, as contingency. And that's what they did. Okay, just quickly there, for those that don't know, what is um, value engineering? Mm. Uh, to be honest, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd let the pro, uh, project control expert to answer that. But uh, to me, to me, value engineering is, uh, is, is, is pretty much looking at, at, at the project and actually seeing, say, look, how can we actually uh, do stuff differently in order to get to the same outcome, but for 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 less the, the money, but at the same quality? But I'll, yeah. I'll let the project project engineers answer actually, that. I'll actually take it from a slightly different perspective, and that is actually get the right people in place. So you're actually asking the questions to the right people. So you're talking you're, you're talking about SMEs, like if you're talking about engineering, like. Value engineering come from engineering. So, if you had a specialist engineer talking about how I hang a door versus correct, you know, a mechanical engineer, correct. So you're, you're actually getting the is, right people in there, place. Exactly, and you're saying, right. is there another way to hang this door or build this engine? Correct. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so how do you describe that to people who don't so understand what you're talking value about? Value engineering is more to do with getting the right person or get get the people that actually have the know-how of actually physically doing that specific job. Yeah. and then getting them to say, this is how we're going to do it. That's valid engineering. Because if, I, if I'm very passionate about flying or something like that, whatever the subject is, then suddenly if, if people were asking me specifically what that was, I will be answering of my passion and, and, and what I've been working on. So it's very important to get the right people. And I think, I think Shulu answered it fairly. He said, you know, it's about looking at something with a, with a different approach. So if you had a standard design, looking at a different way, not compromising quality, but but achieving a cost adherence. Because the idea is that you can do it one way and it's going to cost you a standard rate. But is there another way to do it to achieve a lower rate? And obviously, that's a technical expert or a subject matter expert's arena. So you're both right, but it's just different definitions of the same concept. But actually, looking at the bigger picture, right? isn't it funny? Because when you look at the Olympics, they got the right people in place to ask the right questions True. and they actually got the right program. Yeah. When it came to Crossrail and all the other big projects, it was something that got sold. They didn't want to put the right price on the paper, right? Because mm -hmm. I've worked for very big companies and we always go, we cannot put that price on because we won't get the job. So you actually start off with something lower and then as you go, then suddenly you start incorporating bits and pieces and that's when it really starts creeping up. And that, even approach control is really difficult because now 
you've, your estimate is actually based on fiction mm. in a way. Yeah, yes and no. Um, because Crossrow is a very complex uh, program. You have you have three signaling systems that are actually uh, running on the on the line. Um, the problem you have with Crossrow is that, and 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 to, and to add to the dynamic is that you have got existing systems that are already there. So basically, you are retrofitting them in order for them to actually be ready in the 21st century. Uh, now. You can get the smartest people to actually look at these things from a feasibility study, but when you actually start doing the works, you actually find that it's highly complex to actually change those systems. Mm. Uh, what you have with Crossrow is that you have a train that's moving from uh, the west under the TPWS system. It goes into the central section under the CBT system, and it comes to... Um, I explain that in, in, in long term... Do a long division on that with the acronyms that we're using just then. <laughs> so if you can share what CBTC, for example, is. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. point is, right, actually, yes, it's all very complex. Yeah. Right? But I bet you, I, I can nearly put my salary on this, right? It was a number that was originally, they came up with a number, right? And that number was probably too high. And they started reducing it in order to fit. I've seen this on nearly every single project. When you start going into these things, yeah. right, it's it's because it doesn't fit. You look at Hinkley, right? A perfect example. They started with something which was, oh, it's just going to cost X amount. How far are we over? In fact, how many years are we late, right? But it's because they didn't want to actually tell the people exactly what it's going to cost. Yet they so far and now they have to complete. But it's it's a sneaky way of doing it. Yeah, I think we agree. We agree on on, on a little parts, but but, but the, the part where I always drive back is is most of these these decisions are actually driven from from a political side of things. 100%. So if if they're driven from a political point of view, it's like yeah, you have you have MPs who are actually um, accountable to their electorates. So basically, they have to go back and explain why they've made a certain decision. So you end up in a situation whereby you have programs, you have got budgets that are unrealistic if they're actually coming from from Parliament. Sorry, wait, wait, wait. that means they just need to lie even more <laughs> because that means they lie a lot. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help myself, but it's lie on lie on lie. So, so the point of view is that you know project controls and then Rob's already in hysterics because he's trying. Well, you either you either laugh or you cry at some of these things, right? When you see them in operation because they're on a such mega scale that you're like. Really? Yeah. You know, and, 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 and that compounds the error because obviously if you're working on mega, mega projects, well, then just one degree of error is millions and millions of dollars and people's roles and jobs, and it has a massive impact. Yeah. And so you think, well, where, where's the root cause of these challenges? Because obviously commercial having probably intel to a lot of sensitivities around what the project's doing and where it's going and yeah, yeah. how it's going to be operated and how they're going to recover. You talked about value engineering as one of those kind of costs avoidance of cost savings enterprises but but obviously where does the root cause lie is it is it within the organizational structure is it was it is it in within isolation as in interdependency management how we actually manage projects or from your perspective where do you think it lies yeah from, uh, from my perspective is i think it's interdependency management because um, you have a lot of moving parts when you're in a program 
when you're actually running a project, it's easy for you to control it because it's just one entity. It's just that project. When you're running a program, you're running multiple projects. And all those multiple projects have got their own um, programs um, and they've got their own um, 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 uh, they've got their own end dates um, and they've got their own um, uh, key dates which they have to meet. But when you actually fit all of those projects into one project, into one program, that's I think where everything starts falling apart because you have to you have to manage the interdependencies very very carefully and I insist on this you have to manage the interdependencies very very carefully in order for you to actually know from the beginning to the end how the critical path is actually flowing through those projects then ultimately through the program because you can have interdependencies uh, or you can have uh, critical parts in projects, but those critical parts are not aligning to the critical path of the whole program. Okay, I've got a question though, Ryan, because when you actually look at oil and gas, okay, in oil and gas we always started with really big projects, and back in the UK, 10, 20 years ago, they were the big projects, right? And actually, and some call the ships. <laughs> no, we didn't sink little. But when you actually look at some of the big projects, right? How many of them actually went wrong? And I tell you why it didn't go wrong, right? And actually, I worked for, at the time, it was AMAC. It's because they AMAC, just rebaseline all the time. Say again? Because oil and gas just rebaseline every single year, so, you know, you never fail. Oh, no, 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 no. Not on my project. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, is because everything was down, and, and actually, we, and this is a conversation we actually had a little bit earlier on, and it was about project controls and stuff, right? But if you actually went down to the, the basis of whereby you were um, having everything job carded, right? And it's, yes, it's very labor intensive. Yes, everything is very heavily on basically a work pack, and you're actually monitoring on that work pack level, right? But the difference is, Oil and gas actually did this many, many years ago and still doing it to date, right? But it's because they were limited to the amount of time they could actually be down. So when you did a, an upgrade to a, a rig or something like that, within three weeks, right, you had a shutdown. And in that shutdown, you had X amount of work to be performed, okay? We are talking about billions, right? Not only in shutdown time, but actually just getting the work done as well. Now... When you actually look statistically, right, in project controls, we actually usually, usually had a margin of about 3% total that was allowed to actually go over, right? 3%. Okay, let's take a step back. If you actually took that into government projects and you actually took that same approach on rail or on nuclear with Hinkley at the moment, right, would they really come up with a proper price? And I guarantee you the answer is yes. And do you know what? The reason why I say this is I actually, I went for an interview with a very reputable contractor in the UK. And it was, uh, they were at Hinkley for two years already. The moment they actually brought up um, the program, I'm not a civil person by background. And the first thing I said was, we can't hit this end date. And you know what they said? Actually, we can't, we cannot tell the clients 
because at this moment in time, we're not allowed to report that. So that in itself is actually busy giving false indications and false pricing. So that was actually more the question, right? Is why don't we go back to something where what we know, right? And if something got priced properly, you would actually have a proper indication of what is actually busy happening on the project. That's actually a really good um, insight there, Rob. So thanks for that. And um, I don't know if we can answer the question right now, but I just want to pause. I just want to paint everyone a picture that's listening. So, you know, you've, you've got the three of you, you sitting there in Australia having a couple of beers, which is great because this is really, really good conversation. We're getting some really open, honest feedback here. And then me suffering here, sipping on my water in the UK early, in the early morning. <laughs> Sorry, dude. So, <laughs> Welcome to come down to us anytime, Dale. That's uh, no problem. So, so no, just to paint that picture for everyone, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, it's actually really, really engaging conversation. Um, and, and this is really insightful because these are perspectives that we haven't heard before from people that have been on these live projects that, that, you know, um, is in the public domain, large things. So, so yeah. Um, and, and while Val was out going to, uh, top up the, the beers on that side, um, I wonder if it's a good, um, I guess, segue to go on to Heathrow and some of the challenges you found there, Rob, because um, cl clearly um, we've, we've, we've gone into Crossrail. We understand. <laughs> we understand, you know, so he's already too excited there, Dale. You just got him set off. He's like, yeah, let's hey. talk about Heathrow. And he's like, yeah. right. And he just pulled out a notebook. He's tired. <laughs> he's doing and, and everything um, right now. He's, he's ready to go. So he's poised yeah. and ready. So. I think yeah. maybe the, qu the first question must come from Dale for Heathrow. So if you've got uh, anything for us, Heathrow, um, go for it. So I don't have anything, any scathing question to try and ask you. It's, it's more <laughs> so you know, you, you, I, I don't think I have to either. I, th I think you know, you what you about five or six beers deep, so you'll do it yourself. Um, but yeah, if you, <laughs> yeah, you got a controls background. Uh, in controls, you know, we see we see everything. Um, everything from the technical aspects to the politics, we see the full spectrum of what goes on. Um, in your opinion, and I know I don't have to ask for your honest opinion because we will get it. Um, what, what, are, <laughs> what, what, are, what are some of the, 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 the positives and some of the negatives that um, you can share with those that will be listening um, that they can take away and apply on their projects so that they can improve the way they're managing projects from a controls perspective or any other perspective that you that you wish to share. It's a very good start you have there because you said, in my opinion. So let me start with, <laughs> with my opinion. <laughs> hold, hold on tight, sisters. Hold on tight. I don't need anyone knocking on my door. But anyway. <laughs> Um, the, the big thing, though, I think that the positive is, right, I think um, Heathrow is an amazing place and there's actually so much going on. I think in terms of when you look at the amount of people that are actually busy contributing to the building projects within and just trying to get things done within Heathrow, it is absolutely amazing. It, it is astounding to think that there are so many people, so many projects running at one time. And actually, the airport still is running on a daily basis, and flights are still landing and taking off. It's absolutely astonishing. So, what's the volume for? Because we're from Australia, but for those that are listening that are not from the UK or been to the UK, mm -hmm. like how big is? Because I've been there, we've been there, but 
Heathrow is massive. It's a monster of, a, of, a, of an airport. But can you explain, like, in it's, terms of... Do you know what? It is constant. I, I actually, I was very lucky to sit right in the middle of uh, what is called the compass sensor. And in the compass sensor, so you can actually see, um, it's right next to the runway, and you actually see these big aeroplanes landing as well. And wow. the, the phenomenal thing about Heathrow, of course, is is um, we've got a, well, we, I say we, but they, they had a, a lot of uh, some of the A380s and, and some of the big planes landing. So, and it was constant. It was actually amazing to think that you had all these aircraft just coming in. And of course, they're taxing in and it's just constant. So, um, in terms of volume, I think, um, I recall something of, what was it, 180 there was something like 180 landings or something like that, um, because we were doing a comparison to what uh, Melbourne obviously doing, and it, when you actually look at the, the the volume, I think it was like something like a 80. What is 80 to no? I, um, okay, I think it's like something like 180,000 or something in volume of people busy landing in a 24-hour space. Oh wow! So, so it's huge. Wow. Right? It is a big one, but but okay, you can jump on YouTube and or not YouTube on Google or something like that and probably get the, the right numbers because it's all, all uh, published yeah. on there. Yeah. But it is just phenomenal the the amount of people that are busy moving through it. So in in terms of what it, it works, right? But the negative I would think is because of all this volume, it actually restricts of what maintenance you can actually do at what time as well. Mm. So it makes it actually very difficult to try and pinpoint, because for instance, on the job we were busy doing as well, is they needed to upgrade or actually uh, do some maintenance on the runway. And even just maintenance on a runway was actually really difficult because you had so many flights coming in, you, you physically had to close down one runway and then try and redirect everything on a different runway. So that in itself just meant it's a huge amount of volume on, on the other runway to try and maintain and just keep up with maintenance. So I think in, in the same sentence, the, the, probably, the negative is they are probably the downfall of their own success because they can't actually keep up with maintenance. So I'm going to go straight into my favorite discussion of all because, you know, working in project controls and working particularly in, in, in London and in, in Australia, I've I've been interested in, like, the repetition of the same problem. And project controls, I think the problem statement remains. The content might be different. And I think that's that's a, that's clear across industry, right? And I know because I'm speaking to Dale and yourselves and that the problem statement hasn't changed. And so from a project controls perspective and a systems maybe perspective, what's, what's the environment being a project controls person in Heathrow, what's the environment like? And do they suffer the same problems of other, as other big projects or operational projects where the projects have to go on even though there's operability or interoperability hindering the performance of those projects, for example, any upgrades or maintenance? But obviously for rail would be the same where you can't stop the operation of rail while you also build the rail. You can't stop the operation of airplanes or airports while you you build passengers in because that's a revenue stream for the for the program. So how do you deal with that? Okay, actually, um, there's there, that that is a very big question. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. That's a You're very welcome. big question. And and actually, um, I'll actually start off with maintenance. The biggest issue I believe in in Heathrow is 
is that they actually haven't been keeping up with maintenance. And the reason being is, is because financially, because they've privatized, suddenly it is something that needs to provide profit. So that in itself means whatever you've got as an overhead needs to be reduced. What's the first thing that goes? Maintenance, right? We had exactly the same in Shell, BP, the whole bloody lot. They did exactly the same thing. Why? They cut on maintenance because it's an overhead and beanies as an accountants do not understand maintenance. Thank goodness they're not into um, armed forces. But anyway, right? <laughs> so, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Rob, because, because what has actually happened is, unfortunately, when, when you look at, for instance, uh, projects running in Heathrow, the big decision actually comes whether it is actually cap, uh, CapEx or OpEx, uh, right? Yes, yes, yes. So the, the, the moment it's OpEx, it's operational. Sorry, can you explain the two first? Really? <laughs> Your definition of it, because I know there's a lot of definitions of it, but what does CapEx and OpEx mean to the to the layman project member? Like, Because we can get stuck on this for a long time, but the five-minute spit of your version of that. I've even got a shorter version. CapEx is, uh, well, CapEx and OpEx. OpEx is operational. CapEx is overheads, and basically it's, um, you can, yeah. Yeah, no, our sister, um, Rob here. So CapEx is uh, capital expenditure. That's what it means. And OpEx is uh, operation expenditure. Perfect. Correct. <laughs> but also, as an OpEx, from the business perspective, is something which is operational, right? Which means maintenance usually gets included in and then you get CapEx, which is basically guys going around with a big bucket to all the shareholders and saying, we need money, right? Which means they're not paying for it. Now, that in itself is actually half of their downfall because they're getting a road. The road has now suddenly come to an, the end of its uh, lifespan. It's still there. It's still maintainable. It's still operational. Yet... Because the life expectancy has dropped suddenly, or whatever reason they come up with, suddenly they turn that into capex. Through capex, you need a design, right? So now, instead of actually people just going out and fixing the bloody road with potholes in the UK, which is just fucking lovely, sorry for the French, but it is, and we all have the same problem, right? <laughs> what happens? <laughs> You know, but it's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, with those flurry of words, um, I'll actually tone it down a little bit. So <laughs> what happens with that is uh, um, capital expenditure is, is uh, and I'm, I'm just adding to uh, what uh, Rob was actually saying. So capital expenditure is the part where you're actually putting in money to actually build something. So basically, if you've got a road, you actually find the money to actually go and build a road. Yes, uh, if you have... If you have um, uh, X, uh, it's, 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 it's the finance, financiers. Stakeholders. Stakeholders, yeah. Correct. Correct. So now, yeah. suddenly you have a road which is full of fucking potholes, right? Big bloody holes, and we need four by fours and shit, which we're also <laughs> going to get taxed on. Lovely. Anyway, so now we have potholes, right, that need fixing. So what happens? They say, okay, we now, now need a design. So now a design gets created. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly your project is actually delayed immediately by four to six months because yeah. a design needs doing, right? So yeah. now when it actually comes to guys actually just going out to fix the road, now we need a design to tell us 
we actually have a road in place that needs a design. Really? Well, that's CapEx. Yeah, yeah. So in itself, it's actually busy, busy delaying it. So, okay, we've got a design. Now we've got the funding, everything. We fix the road and it works. But it's nearly taken, what, nine, a year to, what, 12, no, 14, 15 months? Yeah. yeah, yeah in yeah, order yeah, to yeah, actually yeah, get yeah, the work yeah. done? Yeah. That in itself is just ridiculous. I think, I think, I think, I think one of my questions, uh, Rob, is, um, of course, you have at Heathrow a lot of issues going around. Um, is it a third runway or a fourth runway? I can't remember. Third, third runway. Expansion. Um, exactly. So, um, and you have a lot of vested interests in, in in this. So, so, so you have not only government, seriously, not back on the serious note, not only government, but even, even people who actually own houses around Heathrow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically they, they are looking at the, the value of their properties going up. Um, and 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 if if of course there's this compulsory purchase of of land there, actually, people are actually already, but it's it, done already. people are actually looking at how much they actually can get the back off of of the government. Uh, but this topic has actually gone through the papers like a hot fire. Correct. What's your take on it? Okay, we, we've diversed again, <laughs> but digressed, digressed, diversed, and <laughs> um, actually. It, the funny thing is, is it still hasn't actually gone through local council. So the, the local council approval still needs to be given. Mm. They are actually now currently busy applying for that application to the council. Now that could take several years. So, True. and is it going to happen? Whew, I don't know. I suppose it's what, what what's the color of your money? So you've done a really good job at avoiding my question, which is great because um, one of the hardest things is, is is talking about these mega projects or even these operational versus capex projects. How do you distinguish the challenges from the mediocre? Like business as usual is, is generally pretty painful on these projects anyway. And there's a level of resilience you've got to have in project controls and commercial management and pro PMO that, that goes beyond because you're, you're quite open to a lot of information and it goes from the political sphere all the way down into the working the working work where you're down in the QSs and you're looking at bins and blocks and variations and it's, it's quite messy down there as well. But from your experience on Heathrow, given that there's all these projects going on, you know, what, what's your what's your interpretation of their environment? Did you would you take away some of the positives and the and the challenges that they're having? Do you know, actually, uh, as well? you make me sound like a politician because it's not like I'm not trying to, to answer your question. <laughs> I want to answer them all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, to be dead honest, um, in in Heathrow, I think the biggest the biggest problem is they don't have enough people because they have the same contractors, the what, same suppliers. What kind, of, what kind of people are you talking about? Just just physical people actually doing the work okay. because there's so much going on, and as as a, a an airport. You have to have people which are airside air qualified yeah. or airside passes and all that type of stuff. So there's a lot of – the security is just huge for obvious reasons. So that in itself actually limits the amount of people as well. Mm. So that in itself makes it actually very expensive, mm. but you don't have enough people. And because you don't have enough people, you can't actually get projects done quick enough. 
Was, so, was that the challenge that you faced when you were working there? So you were project controls manager there, or yes. what was your role there? Yes, and I was project controls. Um, and it, the the people that we were working with, with several companies, I'm not going to mention names, but uh, it's usually the same couple that always come through. And actually, what was happening is even if you were trying to really make things happen quicker, actually you were still restricted because they could only perform as quickly as the people that they actually had on board. Mm-hmm. So that in itself just restricted how quickly you could actually do the jobs. Uh, that's a very good explanation, uh, I think, of, of, of how the, the works went down there. And, and actually, so I, I had a curveball coming from, from my side as a, a Crossrail guy, because Crossrail is actually going to Heathrow. Um, there's another dynamic of um, um, Crossrail actually using um, a different signaling system that actually goes out to, to, to Heathrow, which is ETCS, European Train Control Systems. Um, but the challenge on, on, on the Crossrail side, linking into into Crossrail, into sorry, linking into Heathrow discussion, is 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 the fact that um, the government, or or should I say, Crossrail as a program, has to future proof um, the European train control systems that actually goes into 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 Heathrow um, as as a train control system. Uh, that's going in there so that has been a, a massive challenge as well um on on the crossroad side side of things and and that's where the two 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 two, pro- well. two programs because in Heathrow they needed to change all the the tracks as well and 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 in fact the the tracks at the moment are probably they're getting extended and extended and extended because they can't actually get a, a time of when they can actually stop and start replacing I think we are uh, trying to get a, a question across. Dale, yeah, Dale can yeah, we so, hear? So, yeah, can you hear me? So, sorry, yeah. I, was just, I, was just, I was just listening intently there and building up a few questions. Um, I tried to chime in once or twice, but I think you guys were too loud in the room. Um, but so, so just to clarify that for those listening, what were you actually trying to do at Heathrow? Was it the runway? Was it maintenance? What was it? Everything? What was it? Just to clarify um, that quickly. Uh, actually, sadly, no, no. Okay, I'm going to answer this, right, because I'm ex-aviation, right, and we are very driven on maintenance, okay? And I can tell you what, sadly, it's because it's not about maintenance. Because they've got down the route of going the uh, CapEx route, right, basically maintenance costs too much, so you effectively you run something into the ground, and then when it needs replacing, that's when you deal with it. Okay, so the, so the actual project that you were working on was a maintenance project, is that right? It wasn't no. the... No, what, what was no, the actual no. project? Just to clarify. No, well, I can't actually say specific projects. Okay. <laughs> because that was exactly who I was working for. <laughs> but it was to do with asset management, right? Right. So, okay. in a way. Basically, he was the guy who was running the things down. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So. Another thing I wanted to say was not not so much a question, but it's a it's a great observation that you can sit safely there in Melbourne in Australia and have a go at the projects in the in the UK that you guys used to work at. On. But you so, won't believe uh, it. We've got exactly the same issues over here. Okay. Exactly the same issues, and it's because they've gone down the route of capex opex. Yep. Maintenance. Do you know? And in fact, I, I can actually tell you the history of 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 Heathrow, right? is exactly 15 years ago, they came up with this, there was some brain boff that came in, 
some beanie with a big white jacket and he came in and said, you know what, this is, this is the way to run projects and we need to cut maintenance. They actually fired 2,000 uh, baggage handlers because of that, right? So for job prospection, prospection, <laughs> no, it's not touching extra, <laughs> prospection. Prospective. There we go. There we go, Chulu, thanks for helping. <laughs> yeah, it, it was terrible because suddenly you actually had a lot of baggage handlers that were actually without jobs as well. However, on the same side, you also had unions and stuff, which we're not going to go into, right? But the unions were saying, okay, let's go down that union route and, and do whatever they do best, right? And suddenly they automated stuff. Yes, it's made things faster, quicker, but maintenance effectively actually got hit on the head and that everybody started going down this capitalist or this uh, capex route of trying to run a business. So can I can I ask you a question? Because you've been you've had what how many months now in Australia? Ooh, uh, what was it? Seven, seven, eight. So given your worldly experience in Australia and and the type of challenging projects you've been on, if you had some things to take back to Heathrow, what would they be? <laughs> this is where I start selling programs. <laughs> well, the thing is, <laughs> that's actually I can't answer that. <laughs> To be dead honest. Okay. These guys are actually hysterical down here. Seriously. Can I actually jump in there and actually answer that one? Yeah, okay. You go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, the thing about it is that there's there's no one solution to um, a lot of problems that we have uh, faced around the world. Because when I came to Australia, uh, I had England as the pinnacle of success. Uh, and I've come out here and I've actually been surprised in terms of how developed Australia is and how some of the systems are quite good. Um, different Like parts. rail. No, no, example, like rail. Just an example. No. No, no, we'll give an example. I lived in Horsham, yeah. right, in United Kingdom. And a rail ticket for me going to London would have cost 6,000, no, 5,600 pounds yeah. a year for a year ticket. Yeah. In Australia, at the moment, I'm paying, and I live more or less the equivalent distance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But my rail ticket is costing me nearly $8, right? Yeah. So that's four pound about, right, give and take. Mm. Which, if I had to do a, a day ticket from Horsham, it would have cost me forty-seven pound. Yeah, someone is taking the piss. Yeah, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. so and that, and that, that is where I think Australia is really working because it's still government-owned. Yes, there's some private entities, but things are actually working. Yeah, and and that's the part where I was coming because because basically my 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 theory about this whole thing since coming to Australia is that there's no one one system that's actually has got a monopoly to 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 how a system should work and there are things that work for 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 the United Kingdom and there are things that work for for Australia but I think the best part where we we need to to actually synchronize around the globe is actually looking at things that work and actually coordinate and see how we actually take those best practices and put them into into action. Um, if 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 you look at Sydney, if you look at Melbourne, 
these are the two cities I've lived in. They are amazing. Um, just looking at the infrastructure that's around, it's not too far off in terms of where the United Kingdom is. So I wouldn't say that what we do in the United Kingdom is the pinnacle of success. All I'd say is that there's some, there's there's lessons yeah there's lessons to be learned on 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 either side because and and I must I must actually stress this and 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 I absolutely love this because um, I'm a huge uh, green person in in terms of offshore wind and all that type of stuff so green energy and all that great right but what is fantastic though is, is you come to Melbourne and you can actually internally in Melbourne itself, you actually get on a tram and it's free of charge. Yeah, right. Yes. So yes. to put in that in, in so so to put that in perspective, mm-hmm. right? If we actually, for instance, said everything up to about Oxford, right, to London, Victoria, mm-hmm. right, and actually did that in a square, right, everything grid. traveling inside that grid would actually be free of charge. Yeah. Right. Now that to me is a huge driver for getting things working within Melbourne, right? Now, that, if anything, is probably a lesson learned that we could probably take home and actually say, but you know what, we want to talk about green, we want to talk about all these things, stop emissions, stop all that type of stuff. Okay, let's use what is actually running at the moment. Now, unfortunately, I know also as well, is it's massively overcommitted. The, the amount of people traveling on underground is it's staggering. It's it's crazy. It's something like two million a day. It's ridiculous. It's, yeah. it's incredibly the, the volume of London alone is so big, and and the constriction or the constraints of the actual underground tunneling is so poor in terms of accessibility and asset uh, prioritization. Where do you put the asset? Yeah. And the deterioration of it that it's a real big challenge. I know Dale probably has more detail on 4LM, for example, which is looking at the four major lines of a London Underground. But there's a massive, massive problem there but, in terms of overall um, construction. Correct. And actually, just, just to finish that off, is um, here, at least, I feel, in Melbourne, they're actually saying, you know what, let's reduce gases, let's why drive in the city, but actually then giving an option of whereby you can jump free of charge on a tram, right? In in other words, that means in London, they need to actually say, you know what, you can jump on underground and actually physically use the tubes free of charge because it's in the zone. Mm. You don't have to drive a car. Now, that would be bringing commission or, or uh, emissions and stuff down. So at least here, they're giving the, an alternative to actually saying, you don't have to drive a car or you shouldn't be driving a car. Whereas in, I feel in London at the moment, they're still not doing that. That's the equivalent of carbon value engineering, isn't it? There we go. <laughs> exactly. Dale, I can see you want to come in. Do you yeah, want to come no, in? I, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think you, you, all three of you are right. There's, um, there's lots of lessons to be learned from cities all over the world. I mean, you know, you could say, well, why don't we just cut out any sort of electrical transport and go like Amsterdam with, you know, bicycles. But every city, every country has its own unique challenges. Val kind of touched on, you know, the how old the tube system is. It's the oldest system in the world. So you have different challenges that you would have to Melbourne. We won't go into them. Um, but then you also got, as you touched on in your earlier stories, you got the political side of things. Maintenance. Um, also maintenance, which is a bugbear of yours. Um, so that is actually so fascinating because 
we could probably take every single um, infrastructure project and tear it apart and find examples of where it works better in the world. Um, I think the beauty about this conversation for people listening is that there's, as I think Julie pointed out, there's no single solution to any one single project. But purely by people listening to the discussions and experiences that we've had on projects, they can form their own opinions and hopefully give them some perspective on um, things to think about. Um, and mm. I, I guess one of the things also just to, to segue away from that is, you know, um, Rob, you're talking about, you know, your passion about, you know, green um, technology and, and, and renewable energies and things like that. Um, I realized we, we actually skipped the part about your background and telling us where you're from, but about your career and things like that. I wonder if you can just share with us, because, you know, you've given us a great insight into some of the projects you've worked on, but more specifically about you, where you've come from, um, how long you've been in the industry, um, and a bit about your journey. <laughs> Suddenly I've got this mic right in my mouth. <laughs> Thanks, Val. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I was actually, I was definitely trying to avoid that. <laughs> I didn't really want to go and tell my, uh, the entire history, but... He's quite humble, but if, I, if we could even start right back where you were paratroop, because I think that's where the craziness started, and I think a lot of people that start on Project Controls are disturbed, <laughs> and you just proved my theory, so can we start there? Listen, there's no such thing as a humble South African, so, you know. <laughs> well, you're looking at one. <laughs> um, well, um, yes, it's true. I, I used to be in the Paris. Um, I actually did my national service, which was the last year in South Africa of national service. And despite what political uh, turmoil we were finding ourselves in, it was a yeah. Well, it was a change from the old system to the new system with Mandela coming in, and wow. um, it, which is amazing in itself. But um, I'm half British. My mom is my mom's English. Uh, my dad's South African, and so we had a very good understanding of what was going on in London. And unfortunately, it was just there was a lot of propaganda because even being in the military, uh, there was a, a lot of fighting internally and to be honest it was it was all in the townships it's which is terrible and i think it was a yeah it, it's just a, a time of our lives of um yeah it it was a bit rough but anyway that that was uh armed forces um and <clears throat> um i actually through a promise uh, had to go back to the uk and um, because my mom said, you can join the army, but you have to go to the UK. And um, that's how I ended up, um, actually ended up, <laughs> it was only through a promise because I love the armed forces. <laughs> so there's not completely something wrong with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then I got into the UK, the UK and actually, um, it's quite funny because my I very much wanted to go back into the forces and my brother actually had to uh, set something up with the uh, local hotel industry and um, he phoned on behalf of me <laughs> pretending that I that he is me. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> it's a true story. Are we supposed to actually tell our fraud stories on the, on, on the system? Well, this is totally up to you. Because it's visa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you, you know, no. your, your, 
what you tell and 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 your stories is is, is comes from you. There's there's no uh, T's and C's. This this is not a there's no um, commercial uh, contract in place here. So um, it's entirely up to you what you'd like to share, not share. But well, no, that's well, no really worry. insightful. It's keep keep keep, <laughs> keep going, keep going, Rob. Keep going. Well, um, having worked in the hotel industry, <laughs> immigration will be on him in a minute. Hello. <laughs> Well, having, uh, yeah, so I did the um, uh, catering, well, a, a hotel industry. And then um, actually, it was, um, I was living in Portsmouth at the time, uh, flicking through some newspapers and stuff. And uh, now, um, what I haven't actually said was, is uh, at this point, I was a qualified helicopter mechanic in the Air Force. Um, and because of the nonsense that was going on in South Africa at the time, and they started affirmative action, and suddenly I was a little bit too pale, and I just thought, you know what, I wasn't part of the system, fuck it, I'm gonna get out, and I left um, to the UK. Now, so I did uh, some background in um, hotel industry, and then I was actually paging through the newspapers, and then uh, saw what people were earning offshore, and then, um, so, it's, it's bizarre because I actually already I had done an apprenticeship in helicopters so I could make them fly. I wanted to become a flight engineer because I, I really was passionate about flying. And then because of all the problems, okay, that didn't work. And then um, in the UK, three years down the line, I decided I wanted to get into um, ROVs, remote operated vehicles. and. So I actually did another another apprenticeship. I actually moved up to Scotland. Uh, we ended up living in Scotland for about 16 years. And I progressively started working my way through the structure of oil and gas, starting with remote operated vehicles, maintaining, flying, all that type of stuff. Then uh, it got me into logistics. And I think, if anything, it actually probably taught me the basis of what real project controls were because, in a way, one actually saw what was actually happening on the ground. Now, thankfully, it was in, in oil and gas because I think it was quite lucrative at some points, but they were very, very good with training. So one actually got trained really well, got brought through the, through the ranks, and then um, progressively one actually got into different things. Um, so my first job... Um, in project controls or planning was actually through logistics, through AMEC, working for Shell. And yeah, and I, and if anything, I'm probably, I've been in project controls now for about 14 years since then. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a bit of a, a change and a change and a change. But I think it's probably, if anything, it's probably contributed to why one is so disciplined in trying to get process, procedures, and then actually understanding where the different elements are actually busy coming in and systems. So although we hate systems, we, we hate change, in the same sentence, we can also say, but actually we need process, procedures, systems, because it actually, it's when you, once you've actually gone away from them, suddenly you go, oh, hang on, but I need, Where's this? I need this system. I need this process in order to actually get people to start following 
exactly what we do. <clears throat> and if I, uh, uh, that story just actually strikes a cold with me because um, if, if I look at um, Rob's career, uh, from where he started from to actually changing his career to, to where he is now in, in project management, it actually shows you the dynamic of how a human being can actually adjust to, to different different things. Um, me and Val were talking earlier because we were. Co I was actually commenting on Val's um, LinkedIn uh, post earlier about uh, a guy called uh, Ken Robinson, who talks about uh, education and who talks about knowledge. Um, and and I, I actually said to to I actually posted on uh, on, on Val's uh, profile. Um, education is a mean. It's not a means to an end. So basically, you don't get educated in order for you to actually get a job and you, in order for you to have a salary. You get educated in order for you to learn something and actually impact back or, 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 or have an impact back in, in society, make a difference. Mm. Um, there's a, a saying that goes around saying uh, knowledge is power. I always say whoever said that was lying. Knowledge is not power. Knowledge, the, the application of knowledge is power because you learn something and you actually apply it. Uh, you can have degrees, and, and if you put them in, a, in, 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 in your desk drawer, they're absolutely useless. A degree is in the brain, whether it's on paper or not. And Rob is a classic case of that. So the, Rob is a classic case of the guy who's actually learned how to actually do stuff and actually do it to a really, really high standard. The same standard as as, as as somebody who who has a doctorate or somebody who's got the, the master's degree, the guy learned the craft. The guy has gone out there and actually put himself out. Everybody can actually do this, and and it's all about us actually coordinating our our efforts. And one thing I like about um, about Val because Val is actually my manager. If for 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 those listeners, if 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 you look at how Val tries to actually empower you, it, it's actually impressive uh, because he actually listens to you and he actually gives you the autonomy to actually do what you have to do in order for you to be the best that you can be. And this just goes out to everyone. We, we, we've had this whole discussion about different uh, challenges we've had on contracts, but the bottom line is that we're all human those challenges will be there in projects. They won't go away. The bottom line is that we have to just apply the knowledge we've actually gained and just keep on going. Yeah, thanks for that, Julia. I mean, you know, we try not to big up Val too much on on this uh, podcast, but um, he'll he'll take. It seems to have a negative effect on our listeners, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't but ignore, no, no, ignore them. It's, it's really insightful, actually, because, you know, you talk about education and, and that's one of the, the main reasons or it is the primary reason why we're doing this podcast. There's no commercial yeah. value in this. This is sharing. So others yeah. out there may learn from our experiences. Um, I, I thought of um, one or two uh, questions for, I guess, both of you, um, and you can answer in one at a time, um, kind of just from your perspective. Um, I guess, Rob, you first. Um you know, if, if, if someone was starting off or looking at project controls, what, what is the, the, you know, I guess the elevator pitch you'd give them as to why they should get into controls? Actually, I'm going to reverse the question, right? And I'm going to say when, and, and it's bizarre, right? Because, and the reason why I say this, I'll actually give the, the, the bizarre bit first is 
and, and it's a bizarre way of answering it, I know, but when you look at some of the bigger companies, right, it's amazing to think that a lot of these big companies actually go into business and don't actually, it's like you've got all this money, but you're not actually putting it in the bank. Why do we need in the bank? Because at least the bank will tell you how much you've got in and how much you're spending, which means in itself, it's a system. And it's bizarre to think so many companies, and especially with what we're busy doing at the moment, is people don't understand systems and they don't actually implement the systems and they don't actually have systems running to get that project controls element of controlling where your funding is going, making sure different elements of the job is actually running on time and, and actually starting start looking at the whole thing. So in a way, it's incredible to think in this modern day technology how little there's actually in place. And a lot of the big, even our current clients, it's amazing how they've expanded and they don't actually have systems in place to maintain and control. So I suppose that is probably the passion is because okay. I've come from this background where everything is very maintenance because you need things maintained, right? And I think that's where Val and I are very similar because we ex-forces. But yep. because of that, I suppose, inset, we get into a place and then we start looking at something and go, but okay, but you need, where's the process? Where's the yep. procedures? Yep. Where's the system, right? So that structure, anything, isn't it? Yep. And I think that to then answer you, is for, for people that actually probably want to get into project controls, it is usually the, the, the more analytical type of people that actually start looking at how do I get to this or where is this, where is the contract, how much is that going to cost, how, what is the, the, the uh, safety impact, what, is this, what does it mean if suddenly things start slipping or if, for instance, if... And, and, and the funny thing is, is we, even if we take it back to normal applications at home, and for instance, let's say we wanted to get a builder in to come and do, a, or even like a carpenter or uh, someone laying carpets, right, what do we need? We, we need, okay, we need to remove the furniture. We need to make sure, okay, what time is the person going to come through? Is he actually going to be there? It, it's, it's the normal stuff, but it's, I think if a person already thinks in that way, that in itself is probably a dead given that project controls is probably 100% up your street because you're actually busy looking at different elements, trying to pull it all together. And and the funny thing is, is I think most people are like that. Well, personally, that's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> and I look at like my I, wife. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess you're right. And it's just about, you know, tapping into that. So that we can't let the wife listen to this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have, to we, have to, we have to censor that bit out. But I, 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 there's there's so much um, that was, you know, I, I guess if you know Rob, but also know project controls, it's not necessarily something you grow up to want to be doing, like, or commercial management for that matter. You don't go, you, can't qualified in you, you, you don't grow up and say, geez, dad, I want to be a, I want to be a project controls manager. Or you can't go to university and say, I want to become project controls. No, you can't. Date. No, you can't. You can't. That's right. That's right. But you can grow up to be a fireman or a policeman or a teacher or whatever. Which is fantastic. And and what I'm what we're seeing and what we're talking about in Australia in terms of differentiation and how uh, I think even Heathrow and mega projects are changing is that 
project controls and now got a voice project controls and now at the exact level project controls and now influencing change and it starts at the system level like you said like you you you, you can't change anything without changing the architecture first because content is agnostic dependent on the framework right so you could say that well our content and our process and our steps is are immaculate they're perfect they're on their precision right we talk about this word precision but if your framework doesn't work if your systems don't integrate well then the interdependency management that you're waiting on to give you awareness of which milestones are important to you and which milestones aren't like you said chulu uh, is irrelevant it's irrelevant and that that is probably one of the things that I find really so enthusiastic and and in a way it's fantastic that in Australia they've actually when when they start with big, big projects they actually start thinking about what system are we going to use how are we can integrate this how and actually all those questions that what I'm used to even in oil and gas Usually the projects kick off, they start running, and then suddenly it's like, what system are we going to use? Now, actually, we're getting involved with rail, road, and even at the airport to an extent, they're actually starting to say, okay, for this big project to happen, what system are we going to get in place to actually make sure that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about? So um, that I actually find it's amazing because finally I think of what we've been trying to get across in project controls for 14, 15 and even probably before my time, um, finally we're actually getting to that point of whereby people are actually thinking all that type of stuff, even on top levels. Because what we're experiencing here is – especially within Melbourne, is even on government level, they're actually starting to try and see what systems they can get involved to actually get all of those pinch points actually sorted out before the project actually even happens, which is really amazing. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Um, because when you look at um, projects, um, you look at different uh, industries. So if you go in, in, in manufacturing, manufacturing has actually uh, pinned this down to a T, uh, where you have economies of scale and economies of scale bring the price down, um, as, as we know it from, from an academic point of view. And that's what we need to do when when it comes to... Um, um, Sorry, Julie, but they told us that about London Rail as well. Look where they brought us today. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, <laughs> they lied to us. <laughs> but but uh, what well, I, I think, in my opinion, what we need to get is 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 to get to a level whereby uh, we have all these systems working and this system working efficiently in order for for them to. Because the ultimate thing about project management is reducing costs um, and reducing the time in which you actually deliver the. The, the project. So th those are the two two things, and not actually compromising the quality. So time, price, and quality. That's the triangle of uh, project management. As long as you get that in in line, then 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 you're fine. And the same pointy question, I guess. And you're right. The same pointy question uh, Dale was talking to Rob about. I guess we can point at commercial management as well and ask, you know. Um, at what point does um, you would tell someone who's learning or wanting to get into the commercial management space or contract management space or procurement space, what what kind of advice would you give them? 
and, and, and what are the pitfalls of the, of the industry that you should look out for? Actually, but before we even answer that, because I'm sure Julie's got a, a volume of uh, insights to this. Actually, the nice thing is, though, is, is people can actually study for it. Whereas mm-hmm. in IFIL, project controls, to this point, it's actually something which is a bit of a dark art. Mm-hmm. And in a way, yeah. if, if people can actually really recognize it, they'll probably bring it forward and actually say, you know what? This is what we need, yeah. but luckily, commercial in a way has actually had that connection already with with a lot of uh, project controls, and in a way, like you were saying, it's actually been sometimes it gets to the same point. But luckily, people can actually go down that route of the commercial side. Yeah, and I agree with uh, both Val and, uh, and and Rob. I think I think when you look at uh, construction is. I'll take an example of uh, the UK because I've I've just been in in uh, in Australia for the the, the last five months. Um, UK is a very fragmented industry, uh, so you have a lot of the chain of supplies is 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 is, is massively fragmented. You've got a number of uh, suppliers uh, who all want to actually make a profit within that whole massive uh, chain of supply. How you actually coordinate that to actually become very efficient is actually what gives you the success. If we look at um, um, most of the most of the companies in the UK, they have a margin of about ten to twelve percent they have to make on a construction project. And if you line up all the all the, all the suppliers. Building and construction is three. No, no. no building is three. No, 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 no. Infrastructure is different, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, infrastructure, yes, but building, as in schools, in the UK. Yes. Three. I, it's, I just it's, came from a really big, very successful lot, right? Yeah. Three percent. Net. You're talking about net. But you, most of most of the contractors I've worked for, it's it's twelve percent. Because when I worked for Langerock, uh, oh, all the lot. projects, all the projects we worked on. The, the 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 minimum we could actually do in terms of margin was actually 12 percent on 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 construction projects. Now, if if you look at that, that that's the that's the main contractor. So if you drill down to all the suppliers, all the the subcontractors, if you look at all the margins they have to make to actually make their profits, that actually inflate the value of construction hence the reason why if you look at the uk uk is one of the construct one of the countries in europe that has got massively high inefficiency in income to cost savings yeah no i, I agree with you both and, and obviously there's always going to be debate on on margin and net profit and also yeah, the industries yeah. right so each industry is a little bit different and now that we're in consulting, obviously that's got a different kind of margin. And yeah. Australia versus UK, we could go on with another segment. But I think Dale had a few more closing questions. But I think one on my behalf, I just wanted to thank your time. Thanks for coming in and, and talking about your various industry and experience. And so I guess you know if, if we're just signing off um, with our final few thoughts there, um, I guess I, I hope the listeners to this. Uh, we'll have as much fun listening to it as as I've had watching you guys on that side after a, a few few beers in. Um, I guess um, you know, really feeling sorry for Chulu. They're stuck between an, an Aussie and a South African. Um, it's tough work, um, but, I guess, we should, but I guess. We should. Uh, some jokes. Yeah. I'm sick. I've got but a few I guess, about South Africans, <laughs> but you know, I'm too close to one, so. <laughs> 
Yeah, I need a soldier as well. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think I think you know, in all seriousness, um, you know, there's there a good bunch of a bit of banter there, some good debates um, from your various experiences specifically, um, and 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 good um, lessons learned that were shared um, from your experiences. I, I I think you know, from both Val and myself, we thank you for being part of this podcast. We'd welcome to have you back in the future um, to to share more insights and more experience on different topics. One single podcast can't capture every single thing we've experienced we'd love to share everything um but yeah we, we got to keep these um short um otherwise we, we'd just be here for hours and hours and hours so so from my perspective thank you very much for giving up your evening your friday evening um i'm sure you've had a lot of fun on that side as well and i'm sure you'll continue to have some fun 